0: Jesus says these words in Matthew 27. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock father we so often skid into worship into sunday if this year has taught me anything it is that anything other than building our life on you on the rock that is jesus is foolishness our best laid plans fall to ruin when we build our house, our life on the shifting sands of the things of this world. Father, when we build our house, our life on the rock that is your son Jesus, we realize by your grace that it is not us that hangs on to him, but it is him that hangs on to us, and he has never failed. Father, would you build this service in our hearts as worshipful to you? The baggage, the pain, the confusion, pry it from our hands. The anxiety, the worry, only you can take it from us, Father. Now do what only you can do, for our good and for your glory, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Oh, good morning, Trinity. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here today. Um, Before I jump in, is Pastor Matt still in here somewhere? There he is. There he is back there. Uh, Pastor Matt, can we get the the work that went into, the planning that went into, the logistics that went into 70-something kids, 70-something kids to be here, to feel the presence of God with one another, to worship, to hear his word, to hear the gospel, the logistics that went into that by Pastor Matt and his team, can we give them a huge, (laughs) well-deserved round of applause? Well done. Well done. Okay, we are in a sermon series. We continue our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah called From Ruin to Restoration. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 5. If you have not yet heard Pastor Kirk's teaching on the previous chapters, please do so. They are, in my humble opinion, exceptional. Well, this year, you've heard it said a few times already, you've experienced it for almost 11 months now, has been like an assembly line of tough, difficult, life-altering circumstances coming at us wave upon wave, each one seemingly larger and more complex than the last. COVID, racial injustice, rioting, collapse in the economy, historic job loss, historic storms and flooding, wildfires raging, almost as hot as emotions during this election cycle. Families ripped apart because of political stance. Unprecedented, how unprecedented this year has been. And One thing I love about scripture is that it tells us that this is the world we will live in. It pulls no punches about the brokenness of the world that we experience. But another thing about God's word that I love is that it does not just give us the problem It presents us with the solution. And that is exactly what we're going to see today in Nehemiah chapter 5. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 5 sets forth perhaps the most important point in all of Scripture. And if you miss this point, if you get this wrong, it almost doesn't matter what else we get right. Nehemiah chapter 5 sets forth the path to life and away from death, the path to restoration and away from ruin, the path to peace and away from anxiety, the path to the highest wisdom, the path to innumerable blessings, supreme fulfillment, ultimate joy, the path to community, family unity, total justice and equality, it does not set forth a path It sets forth the path. As you sit here today, do you want life and wisdom and joy and blessings and peace and fulfillment? Do we want unity and justice and equality? Do we want healing and freedom and restoration? If yes, one last question. Do you fear God? Do you walk? in the fear of the Lord? Do you tremble at the thought of being outside of God's will? Do you hate what is evil, starting with the evil that's in you? Do you stand in absolute awe of God's beauty and majesty and providence? Does it make you want to lie down on your face before him at the thought that God knows the most heinous thing you and I have think Done and said, and yet he sent his son to die the death that we deserved. Do you hold his name in holy reverence? Do you fear God? According to scripture, your answer as an individual, our answer as a church, our answer as a nation to that question determines the path we're on the path of ruin or of restoration my goal this morning is to let Nehemiah chapter 5 teach us about the fear of the lord and if i've done my job well if i've loved you well by the end of the message we will all walk again in the fear of the lord now If you're thinking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is at odds with walking in the fear of the Lord, you're mistaken. By God's grace, I will show you today that the gospel does not dull or soften or lessen the fear of the Lord. The gospel intensifies it. And I want to be clear from the start that this is not a message of condemnation but conviction the fear of the Lord does not lead us away from Christ but straight to him and you have my word that by the end of this message you and I will be closer to Christ and closer to one another but I dare not go any further without praying would you join me in prayer heavenly father I am literally shaking at this topic. To preach this topic before your people as someone that has not walked in the fear of the Lord as I should. Father, this... I, I, do, not, I do not want approval of man, but your approval because I've preached your truth and the full counsel of your word not shying away not trying to please people but seeking just to please you Father I do not want to be a Christian cheerleader would you make me a worship leader this has got to be your sermon Father It can't be my words these have to be yours sanctify me through this message how to fill this place fill our hearts fill our minds with the love and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ it is in his name we pray amen okay it is 450 years before the birth of Christ Persia is the dominant world power Jerusalem, part of the Persian Empire, lays in ruins after being conquered, forbidden to rebuild its city walls. And this makes it, as we've said a couple, few weeks now, vulnerable over and over again to constant attack from neighboring enemies. Nehemiah, a Jew living in the capital city of Persia, serving as the cupbearer to the king, is called by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, a thousand miles from Jerusalem, is where Nehemiah lives. And he is granted permission and resources from the king, a miracle in and of itself, to travel back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And he does just that. But before he can even get to inspecting the damage, opposition arises from neighboring clans. One from the east, one from the north, and one from the south. And by the end of it, another one joins in from the west. And so as their mission to rebuild the wall progresses... The Jewish nation is literally surrounded by opposition. The very reason they needed to rebuild this wall. The threat so high that the builders have a trowel in one hand and a sword in another. And Nehemiah ends chapter 4 telling us that no one took off their armor. Not even to sleep. Protecting one another from the enemy lurking just outside of the walls. And thus far, we've seen total unity among the Jews in their mission to rebuild the city walls. The only opposition we've seen came from the enemies outside of the walls. Chapter 5 is going to show us that while they were building up physical walls to separate themselves from their enemy, they were building up spiritual walls separating themselves from one another and God. And paradoxically, the brick and mortar of spiritual walls is not the presence of something, but the absence of it. Spiritual walls go up when the fear of the Lord is torn down. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is Nehemiah saying this, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have exacted from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Full disclosure. When I read through this chapter, I honestly wondered what I was going to preach about. I mean, the situation's obvious, right? You're charging interest and you're dealing in slavery. Knock it off. Nehemiah's got to get his arms around this, squash it, and move on. There's kingdom work to do. So Trinity, let's make sure we're being nice to one another. Serve and give. Join a small group. Get in a Bible study. We've got kingdom work to do. But the more I thought about this, and welcome to my mind, I kid you not, it reminded me of these shingles that we have on the outside of our garage where the paint is peeling off of them. Scrape them, repaint them. Problem identified, problem solved. Right? wrong. The paint is peeling because the shingles are rotted. The peeling paint is the manifestation of the real and much larger problem. Yes, the behavior of the nobles and officials towards their Jewish brethren is a massive problem, but it is like a cough to a cold. It is a symptom of a much larger disease. And so let's first take a look at the manifestation of the problem. Second, how Nehemiah handles it. And third, the solution to the real problem. The manifestation. Okay. Work on the walls of Jerusalem took the men away from their day jobs. So the family income fell off a cliff. Taxes to the king of Persia were high. So you have lower income, higher taxes. Hence, some had to mortgage their fields and vineyards to pay the tax. Lower income, higher taxes, and on top of that, famine. Lower supply of grain, all else equal for my econ nerds, means higher prices. And because of the mounting debt being loaned with interest, some were forced to sell their sons and daughters into servitude or slavery to work off that debt. In debt and enslaved, God's people. And who were they in debt and enslaved to? God's people, each other. They were a class of nobles and officials who were preying on and oppressing their own Jewish brothers and sisters. And lest we think that this cry that arose before Nehemiah was a mild complaint, the Hebrew expression that is used there is the same expression used when, in Genesis chapter 4 when God says that the blood of Abel cries out from the ground after he was murdered by his brother Cain. This is a wicked set of circumstances for God's chosen people. And I use the word wicked in the truest sense. The nobles and officials were not slightly bending some of the rules to get ahead economically. They were directly violating explicit commandments of God. Journey with me to Leviticus, chapter 25. These are God's word as he gives his law to Moses. Starting in verse 35. "'If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, "'you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, "'and he shall live with you. "'Take no interest from him or profit, "'but fear your God, "'that your brother may live beside you. "'You shall not lend him your money at interest, "'nor give him your food for profit.' I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Cana and to be your God. 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now, I know it is easy to miss this because I spent two weeks reading through that in Leviticus, missing it completely. But those are not the words of some grumpy judge, but of a loving father who is calling his children back to him. God knows that the patterns of our behavior will not change to reflect His character until the posture of our heart changes to revere His love. Don't charge interest, for I was generous to you and brought you from the land of Egypt and gave you the promised land. Don't enslave your brother, for when you were slaves in Egypt, I redeemed you. Fear me, love me, keep your eyes on me, revere me, honor me, worship me. He called them back over and over and over again. And he calls us back over and over and over again. And I know he's doing the same thing now, individually, collectively, and as a nation. And although Nehemiah is white hot with anger, let's take a little bit of a detour. This part's for free because I want to appreciate the way he handles this. Nehemiah has an appropriate emotional response, a controlling intellectual response, and a convicting biblical response. Point one, his appropriate emotional response. His anger is justified, and it is righteous because he is angry over the things that anger God. He isn't angry because his feelings are hurt, or his leadership is threatened, or his ego got bruised. He's angry because their community is divided. Their witness to the world is hollow, and therefore God is being robbed of glory. Point two, he has a controlling intellectual response. Verse seven, he takes counsel with himself. He stops long enough to actually think. His emotions move him to action, but his intellectual response channels his emotions to a productive, restorative response. In other words, Nehemiah doesn't just brush the transgressions and the hurt and the pain and division under the rug, nor does he fly off the handle in a fit of rage. Point three, he has a convicting biblical response. He brings the charges to the nobles and the officials on behalf of the oppressed. And in doing this, Nehemiah shows compassion, not just for the oppressed, but also the oppressors. To call someone to biblical repentance is a good thing. It's a good thing for the person. It's a good thing for the body. When done in love, it is the loving thing to do. It is unloving to allow somebody to persist in sin. He says in verse 7 and 8, you're charging interest and selling your brothers into slavery. But these are just statements of fact. The nobles and officials are well aware of what they're doing. What does Nehemiah show them which ultimately convicts them? He shows them their total lack of their fear of God. See, up until verse 9, all Nehemiah did was tell the nobles and officials what they were doing wrong. But if he leaves it there, the best he will ever get is behavior modification. No, Nehemiah is not first about behavior modification. He is first about heart restoration because God is not first about behavior modification. He is first about heart restoration because the heart of the issue is always an issue of the heart. And Nehemiah has to get their hearts aimed in the right direction before he can ever stand a chance at getting their behavior aimed in the right direction. Their behavior is the cough. And now he shows them the disease. Verse 9. Ought you not walk in the fear of God? Verse 10 and 11. Therefore, stop charging interest. Pay it back and return everyone to their fields. It is at that point and not until that point, convicted by their lack of fear of God that the nobles and officials duck in cover because of the incoming judgment. They hide from God because they know that punishment's on its way. No, they turn their hearts back to God. And we see the manifestation of that in verse 12. We will restore these and require nothing from them. Nehemiah had to realign their vertical relationship with God before he stood any chance at aligning their horizontal relationship with one another. And when we look at the world around us, when we look at our nation, when we look at our communities, our families, our friendships, when we look at the abuse and the addiction, the brokenness and brutality, the scandals and the lies, the oppression and the greed, the lust and the cheating, the injustice and the inhumanity, the answer is not first to do better and try harder. Because the problem is not one of effort, it is one of affection, the affection of our hearts. The answer is to walk in fear of the Lord. And it is not first out there, but in here, in me, and in you, think about it. Like unbelievers in 450 B.C., outside the city walls that nehemiah is rebuilding watching the people of god deal in division and seek profit over righteousness so too are the unbelievers of our nation watching the church watching the people of god watching the body of christ and what are they seeing what are they observing during 2020 about the people of god Do they see a body of believers building up walls between one another about the election, the economy, the environment, or COVID? Yes, the election, the economy, the environment, our jobs, our families, our health. These are all really important aspects of our lives. But the anxiety and the worry about those stuff and those things is not the root of the problem anymore in 2020 than it was the root of the problem in 450 BC. It's the peeling paint. It's the cough. The root of the problem is that we've lost our fear of God, and when you lose your fear of God, the first thing you gain is the fear of everything else. And here's the deal. When we live in the absence of the fear of the Lord, it is not just our Christian witness that is hurt, but blessings forsaken. Here are just some of the promises of God that we forego when we do not walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Goodness is stored up in abundance for those who fear Him. God will teach the man who fears Him the path to choose. Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. It will be well for those who fear the Lord. His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. The fear of the Lord is a treasure. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence Malachi, God says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. For those who fear the Lord, there is no want. Unity and justice and blessing and freedom and mercy and equality and wisdom and goodness is yours and yours and yours and yours and and mine if we walk in fear of the Lord. With each and every circumstance we face this year, God is calling his children back to him because he is the source of all of those blessings. No, no, no. Don't let COVID determine my power. Fear the Lord. I know you're hurting. I know you're depressed. I know you're lonely. But stop looking down and look up. I'm with you. I've never left you. I will never forsake you. Worship the Lord. I know you've been rejected, I know you've been mistreated, but my face is upon you. Fear the Lord. The election's a mess and the nation's in turmoil, but my plans cannot be thwarted. Fear the Lord. That was the battle cry of Nehemiah against the spiritual warfare back then, and it is the cry of my heart from the stage today. Oh, that the Spirit move in us, that we would walk again in fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would behold again His radiance. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. That we would surrender to the fact that Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He's not the ABC. He is the A through Z. He existed before all things. And all things were created through Him and for Him. That we would be motivated by His compassion and mercy and grace, dealing gently with sinners like you and a sinner like me, giving living water to the woman at the well and sight to the blind. He healed the lame and raised the dead. He received the downtrodden and castaways. He came for the sick. He fellowshiped with the lonely. He wept for the lost to the point of asking the fathers to forgive those who were nailing His hands to the cross. That we would walk in ultimate reverence of His ultimate authority, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Him. He receives counsel from no one. As King Nebuchadnezzar said, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand or say to you, what have you done? We must come face to face with the cosmic reality that Jesus is not a way of life, but the way to life. He is the truth, the life, and the way. And no one gets to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus is not some stunt double during the dangerous scenes in the movie of our lives. He is the producer, the director. He wrote the script. He wrote the soundtrack. He is the main actor, and there's no supporting cast. When the credits roll at the end, they just say, Jesus We must understand his holiness and his purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolute perfection according to the law. He never sinned. He never once lusted after a woman or spoke a word out of selfish anger. In biblical times, to emphasize something, you would say it or write it twice. We often see Jesus quoted as saying, truly, truly, I say to you. So what should it mean to us when John writes in Revelation that every living creature that surrounds the throne of Jesus never stops worshiping saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is to come. When we are tempted to fear the world around us, fear the one who is to come for the next time that Jesus comes to earth. He does not come as a helpless baby, but a conquering king. The gates of heaven will burst open and Jesus will bolt out on a white steed. His robe dipped in blood and on it is named the King of kings and the Lord of lords. On his head are many crowns. His eyes are like fire. He is flanked on each side by an army of angels. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is the word of God. He is not coming to make friends. He is coming to make war and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on that day, every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. It is not a question of if your knee will bow and if your tongue will confess. The question is when. But, for those who walk in fear of the Lord, his promise to you is that when he does return, he will wipe away every tear from your eye, for there will be no mourning, and no crying, and no pain. There's no death. There are no calls from the hospital late at night when you didn't get a chance to say goodbye. There's no separation, there's no cancer, there's no hungry children, there's no shame, there's no guilt, all of it swallowed up by the infinite forgiveness of Lord Jesus Christ. And here is where the gospel intensifies our fear of the Lord. Walking in the fear of the Lord is not about avoiding hell, it is about getting Jesus. Heaven is not the absence of hell, it is the presence of Almighty Jesus And just like how in Nehemiah 5, the Jewish people were in debt and in slavery, so too were you and I, in debt to God and enslaved to sin. We owed a debt to God that we couldn't pay, so Jesus paid a debt to God that he didn't owe. And when he went to the cross, Jesus drank down every last drop of the wrath of God that we deserve, flipped the cup over, and roared into heaven, it is finished for the first time. In all of eternity, the Son was separated from the Father so that the first time in all of history, sinners like you and sinners like me would be redeemed to the Father. And for all who come to Him, who all repent and trust in Him, all of us who walk in fear of the Lord, the chains of slavery are broken forever as all who come to the Father are restored Nehemiah chapter 5 has 19 verses. Earlier I read 1 through 13. In verses 14 and 15, Nehemiah states that out of a fear of God, he did not put any financial burden on his people, even though he was entitled to. In verse 16, he writes that he persevered in the work on the wall with his servants. And then this, in verse 17, as he described the feast of that he would hold. Moreover, there at my table, 150 men, Jews and officials. Do you see? Jews and officials feasting together, the ultimate sign of reconciliation as we will in heaven with Jesus to feast from ruin to restoration. The horizontal reconciliation our lives so desperately want will be ushered in only by the vertical realignment our hearts so desperately need. May we turn our hearts to God and walk again in fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, your word has gone forth and you say, you tell us, it never returns void. Father, because of who you are and what you've done, fearing you does not mean cowering out of fear of punishment for your perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Father, it means we walk in a holy reverence, Awe of your might. Awe of your character. Awe of your blessings on us. Father, would it be that today our hearts would be turned back to you, realigned, restored? Father, it is only then will this world be restored. Father, this is a work that we cannot do. But you must. for Your good, glory, your majesty. Father, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. Come, have your way in our hearts. Shine your light into the darkness. Ways that we have not held you in the highest reverence. But don't just expose it. Heal it that we may be one with you and one with each other. May your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen.